I remember arriving with the camera and they were snorting coke and drinking rum. And it was like two o'clock in the afternoon. And a shootout started. And this young, cocky boy that I had been filming, this guy came out with the pistol. And I remember hearing the bullets that were hitting a lamppost. Boom, boom. And this guy was shooting his gun behind the lamppost. And suddenly they hit him in the in the head, right in the in the front head. I remember thinking, what the hell am I doing here? From Aura Studios, this is The Line of Fire with me, Ramita Navai. I've been working in conflict zones around the world for nearly two decades. And in this series, I talk to fellow journalists about covering war and the life-changing moments of confronting death. Welcome to The Line of Fire. My guest today is Channel 4's Latin America correspondent, Guillermo Galdos. He's been covering the region for 20 years, and as well as being an award-winning journalist, Guillermo is a BAFTA-nominated documentary maker. He's known for his work investigating drug cartels. Guillermo, welcome. Hi. Hi, Ramita. How are you? Good, thank you. Guillermo, why and how did you end up in journalism? Well, I've always liked storytelling. And um, I was born in in Peru. And uh, because of a shining path, my family moved to Chile and I remember in Chile, when I was finishing my school there, I um, won a contest about, you know, it's about short stories in school. And then after that, I got into journalism and uh, immediately I started writing for the university newspaper. And I was always, always quite keen telling stories and you know, just liaising with people and, and dealing with, with people. That was what I liked. Guillermo, for our listeners, will you tell us about The Shining Path and why specifically did your family move because of The Shining Path? Well, uh, Shining Path, it was a terrorist organization that appeared here in Peru at the beginning of the 80s. And they were incredibly brutal. They were killing a lot of people in the Andes and then they took the war back into the cities and back into Lima. They started putting car bombs and uh, they started assassinating quite a lot of policemen. And at that time, um, it was not a secure place to grow up. And my father had some uh, business in Chile, a construction business, so we we all moved down there. I remember uh, Chile was coming out of a military dictatorship with Augusto Pinochet and... and uh, a new president, President Elwin, got in power just after we arrived. But the, the war felt like quite removed and quite, uh, you know, far away from, from, from us until Shining Path started blowing up cars in, in Miraflores and, and in, in Lima. And um, I remember when, I, when we got to Chile, you know, I had this image of, of massive car bomb that, happened quite close to where we live. And that marked me a lot, actually. And I remember, you know, looking at the journalists and thinking, 
why are they asking such stupid questions? Because um, I couldn't believe that they were interviewing people that were covered in blood and instead of helping them, they were putting the microphone to them. I remember I, I was quite impressed by that. What was the first big story you covered? I think uh, the first big story, I, I arrived in London when I was 21 years old. It was uh, 96, I think it was. I, I was coming from Chile. I had done a BA in social science in Chile. And actually, I, I left my university in Chile because I, I, I thought that they were quite um, close for my taste. They were very conservative, and I was certainly not conservative at that time. And I decided I wanted to go to, to England. And I got into the London College of Printing, actually. Which was very well known for its journalism course. Yes, it was very well known. And I was quite mm. keen, actually, to get that. And I remember one day I saw in the board the university had on, on one of, of the corridors, you know, with jobs, they were advertising jobs. And, and I saw an internship uh, they were requesting an intern for APTV at the time. And I remember I took the paper away. And I went to APTV and I remember talking with uh, a lady. She was uh, Puerto Rican. We became really good friends after. And uh, she became my boss for several years. She gave me the opportunity and I started the newsroom dealing with Latin America. And at that time, Fujimori was in power in Peru and there was a war between Ecuador and Peru. And I remember telling my boss, you know, you should send me to Peru. I said, I have good contacts. I can get things happen and I can deal with the military and I can go up to the border with Ecuador where they are fighting. And my boss said to me, oh, you are crazy. There's no way I'm going to send you that. I just began working here in AP. And I remember I said to her, listen, I'm going to quit and I'm going to go to Peru and I will call you from there. And that's what I did. I called her from Peru and she basically put me in contact with the AP TV person here in Peru and we went up north to the border. And uh, that was like the first story I did myself for AP. What propelled you to do that? Was it your thirst for adventure? Was it because you felt that this was your story because you were Peruvian? What was it? Looking at, around in the newsroom. Uh, I felt I was the right person to do that story because, you know, I was Peruvian because I knew the north of Peru and I was really keen to to tell what was happening here to the world. Had you thought the risks through? I mean, this was a dangerous thing to do. You had absolutely no experience. Was that yeah. something you found attractive? Yeah, at that time, I remember I was not thinking about risks. I remember, you know, just going there and I went with the guy who was working for a PTV at the time, and he was a former Salvadoran army person who mm, covered the war guy. in Central America. A hard guy. So mm -hmm. he covered the war in Central America, and for him going there, he was like walking in the park. And I remember seeing the helicopters, seeing the soldiers injured and all that, and I thought like, okay, this is a real war. Uh, soon after that... Fujimori signed a peace deal with Ecuador. And I remember that when we left the border, we went to a place in the north of Peru that Fujimori liked a lot. And we went and spent some time with some shamans in this sacred 
lagoons, you know, up in the Andes. And we did a story that, that had nothing to do with the water. One of the shamans suddenly pulled out a picture of Princess Diana and he said that uh, she was not resting in peace and that her soul was moving around. So he did like a special thing, where, you know, with Diana's picture and he was like drinking, you know, hallucinogenic plants. And, uh, and it, was, it was incredible. I remember that show got lots of viewers. And I remember my boss saying to me, I think uh, you've got something special to tell stories. I went back to London after my adventure in Peru and they hired me in APTV. Was covering war as you expected it to be? Did you have any preconceived ideas of what it would be like? Not really. I thought I was going to see a lot of military men walking around and patrolling with their weapons in the, through the jungle because I, I remember the area where they were fighting was jungle. You know, and I remember... One of the soldiers saying to me, if you don't die because of a grenade or a bullet, you know, you, you can die because a, a caiman can eat you or, or a snake can bite you. And uh, I saw, you know, quite a lot of military people, a lot of helicopters moving around, uh, some injured soldiers. And, uh, you know, we did some filming there, but we didn't go to the front line. The front line was, you know, not that far from where we were, but we had a taste of what was happening at the border. That was my first war encounter, I think. And what was it about that experience that made you think, this is what I want to do? I, wa I, want, I want to do work like this, that's risky and dangerous. I, I thought I had the means to be able to speak with people and to understand them and be able to tell their stories. And I always felt secure that I was not going to criticize or to, uh, my main objective was to tell stories. I remember I read a lot of, you know, when I was at university, I remember falling in love with Kapuczynski and the way he told stories, the way you have to leave the stories in order to be able to report them. And that's why I've always done. I've always been traveling to places, trying to understand people instead of just arriving and reporting. Kim, I want to talk about what it's like reporting in Latin America. And speaking for myself, some of the times I've been most scared in my career has been covering stories in Central America. It hasn't been in Afghanistan or Iraq. So it's been in countries where there is no war, but it's like a war zone? Well, as, as you well put it, there are no declared wars in here. Not even when we had the FARC, uh, you know, in Colombia, it, it, it was for the government, it was not a declared war. And uh, I think uh, that's one of the main problems here, that you don't have two different sides, you know, clearly fighting each other with uh, uniforms and um and, and yes, I think my experience, you know, that goes all the way from Mexico to Colombia, Brazil, I think Central America is one of the most dangerous places in the region to work. Uh, they inherited all this trauma from the war in the 80s and 90s there. And the fact, you know, what happened after the war, 
all these gang members arriving back from the US to Central America. And Central America at that time was quite weak because they, they had these new governments that were trying to deal with the problems inherited from the war. And suddenly you have all these criminals that arrive from the north and they started set, setting up, you know, these different gangs in in the region they were brutal i remember working in in honduras and uh, i went to san pedro sula when it became the the murder capital of the world i remember driving from the airport to the hotel and the local fixer told me look look and you know just through the window i saw you know uh somebody lying in the street with a lot of blood next to him so we stopped the car and i started filming immediately now remember that the mother of the person who had been shot was next to her son. And obviously she was crying. I, I, I filmed from behind. I didn't say anything. And when the police arrived, I remember the mother trying to, to, to hold the body of her son. And then she moved to the side and I approached her very quietly and asked her, who do you blame for this? And he said, I don't blame anyone. Whoever did, did this. I forgive that person. And she was like speaking very quiet and she didn't want to mention the word gangs, mm. neither the name of the gang, but mm. I, I was so surprised by the fear engraved in the, in the society in Central America. And yes, it's, it was an inheritance of the war and then the brutality of the gangs. And, and then we've seen what Central America is nowadays, you know, a trampoline for drugs to go up north. When, when this mother said, I forgive anyone, I, I, I forgive the person that did this, did she mean it or was she saying it because she thought she might be overheard? No, I think she, she meant it. And, and, uh, and, and, and it was a mixture uh, because there was quite a lot of people around us um, and I remember her speaking very, very, very quiet. And uh, I, I, I actually used her soundbite on the, on the report that we did um, for, for Channel 4 News about gangs. But after that, I was quite keen to speak with the gangs. So um, I made contact with them and the permission came out of the prison. So I had to go inside the prison to ask permission to film with the gangs outside the prison. And I remember the, the, the guy who was in charge of the prison, I mean, the, the, the authority, the government authority, he said to me, you don't need to ask permission to me. You need to ask permission to the guys inside. So I had to walk in without a camera and speak with the guys inside. And uh, they gave me permission to film inside the prison and to film outside. We did a report on the Mara Salvatrucha. What did you think when the mother said... I forgive the person that did this. Uh, it broke my heart mm. because later on I found out that that was her only son. Mm. So I, I couldn't imagine the pain, you know, and, mm. and, and the scene was was horrific. And um, and I was impressed as well by the how natural it was. How, you know, everybody that was looking at these young men with their head blown off on the floor and mm. a pool of blood surrounding him, uh, they, they were looking at it as, as if it was normal. I remember seeing kids and uh, young people 
And they were all like very serious, but, you know, thinking inside themselves, I think like, luckily it was not us. Yeah. Because they, they knew it was very close. Yeah. You know, at that time, San Pedro Sula was the murder capital of the world by yeah. far. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary. I, I, I had the same experience covering gangs in, in El Salvador and Guatemala, where there was not a day that went by where I didn't come across somebody who had been murdered. And that's the nature of the conflict in these countries, is that it's, it's internal and it's everywhere. How does that affect the way you work? I think um, you need to be careful, obviously, who you work with, and that's something that you learn over the years. And um, if you're working with somebody who is close to one side, you risk being hit by the other side because there there were more than two gangs, or at least two, you know, very big gangs, the Mara Salvatrucha and the Barrio Dicciocho. So it was it, it was complex. I remember helping my fixer after we work. He called me one day, several months after, and he called me from Chicago. And he said that he had migrated himself he was threatened by the gangs, not because of our report, but because he was quite close to a religious leader, to a, an archbishop in Honduras, and he was dealing with the gangs and trying to negotiate the peace deal. And at the end, that backfired on my friend, and he had to leave the country. And I actually spoke with him last week, and it's been like, you know, I think eight years or ten years since uh, mm. we filmed there for the first time. And uh, he's left his country. He's been living for several years in Chicago alone. And his family is still in Honduras. And I've been trying to help him uh, with his case in order to ask for political asylum because I know that death was, um, you know, the gangs wanted him dead. These are incredibly dangerous places to work as a journalist. I mean, the figures of journalists killed are extraordinary. I'm, I'm looking now at the figure from the International Federation of Journalists for those killed on the continent last year was 15. Ten of those alone were in Mexico. How, how do you continue to work knowing that journalists are a target? Uh, Mexico is a special place, I would say. I know at least four or five journalists that I've worked with that they have been killed in Mexico. And uh, a couple of them actually quite close to me, and I've worked with them a lot. And, um, and, and yes, it, 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 it breaks my heart. I think, um, you know, if, if you look at the situation nowadays, Mexico, since the beginning of the year, I think eight journalists have been killed. Nearly the same amount of journalists that have been killed in Ukraine. That's extraordinary. There is no war in Mexico, or at least no declared war. I remember a couple of years ago, we did a story about mothers that were looking for their sons and they were you know, just looking for mass graves around the country. And it was a surreal scene. You see like 25 mothers with you know, digging around in places where informants have tipped them off that, you know, there's a mass grave there. And and the mothers were digging and suddenly the authorities arrived and, and they told the mothers, you know, you can't do this. This is a, 
you know, this is a crime scene, etc. And, and I remember the mother saying to the authorities, listen, we've been telling you about this for the last five years. You haven't done anything. And now you're telling me that I cannot dig with my own hands to look for the remains of my son. And um, that marked me a lot. But the person that we were working with there um, got killed two weeks after hmm. we, we filmed there. And I remember another a friend in common, he sent me a picture of my friend mm. sitting in his car and he had been shot in the head. He got into the car and then suddenly a, a gun appeared in the back and shot him in the back of the head and he was lying on the wheel of the car. And I remember seeing that picture and, you know, it actually, it, 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 it froze me mm. for a couple of days. Because I, you know, I went back to my WhatsApp messages. You know, I had been messaging with him just a few days before. You know, we were talking about about doing a sequel for uh, for the story that we did. He was telling me about the mothers. You know, how they were all the places where they thought there were, um, you know, there were bodies uh, lying around, and uh, it, it actually destroyed me. And another case in Mexico was a. Uh, uh, a journalist that was killed in um, in Culiacán, Javier Valdez, and um, that also surprised me a lot. I was filming in Venezuela when I found out, and I remember I had to stop. You know that day. First, you know, at the beginning I couldn't believe it because Javier was the kind of guy who uh, he will write stuff but without names he knew the deal very well in mexico mm. and uh, he wrote something that el chapo's kids didn't like and they sent a gunman to kill him they shot him at midday in front of the newspaper where he used to work that was called rio 12 rio 12 and they shot him 12 times so it was like um like a message i remember i remember speaking with his wife afterwards and um and thinking that if if it happened to Javier, it, it can happen to anyone. And mm. since then, you know, we've had dozens of journalists that have been killed in Mexico. Guillermo, I want to ask you about the friend you mentioned before Javier. Uh, the friend whose picture you saw. Miguel, what's his name? Yeah. Can can you tell me why Miguel was killed and how he was killed? Who killed him? We think uh, he was killed by one of the local cartels um, that was obviously trying to hide the amount of bodies. He was making quite a lot of noise with the authorities. He was like um, helping the mothers as well. Uh, to organize themselves. And he was basically as well taking people like us into those uh, searches, you know. So I think that he obviously became uh, a target for the cartels and, 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 and you know, they shot him. It, it, was, it was nighttime, I understand, when they shot him. But, you know, it was just one shot in the back of the head. Miguel and Javier were killed for work that you also do did it make you stop and think whether you should continue doing this i i always felt that because i was not living in mexico mm. 
I, you know, that was an advantage. But yes, I, I, I think that at least in Latin America, it wouldn't be wise to do a lot of investigative work regarding drug trafficking, drug cartels, if you are living on the epicenter. That's why in Lima I felt quite removed until I realized that the drug cartels and the organized crime, they have managers and they have operational people in Peru. Peru is one of the biggest coca producers in the world, together with Colombia and Bolivia. And even though we don't have big criminal organizations here as they have in Mexico, we produce a lot of cocaine here. We don't sell it to America or to Europe. That's why uh, the cartels here or the people in charge don't make as much money as the people in Mexico or, or, or the other car- organized crime in Colombia. But I realized that this, if these guys want to hit you, they could hit you in Peru as well. And yes, it's, it's been complex. I don't normally do interviews for newspapers and stuff like that. I remember I've done various programs that, you know, uh, got uh, awards in England and mm. the, the, the newspapers in Peru picked that up on the internet and, and they call me and they want to interview, oh, the Peruvian guy who is interviewing cartels in Mexico, who is doing uh, filming the gangs in Central America. And I've always declined to do um, interviews or to do anything here in Peru because I always tell them, listen, I know that I might be a good story for your Sunday magazine, but you know, I, I don't operate like that. I, I don't think that journalists should do stories about you know, other journalists when you have a lot of subjects that you should cover. Mm. Guillermo, how did the killings of Miguel and Javier affect you personally? They, they did affect it. They did affect me uh, quite a lot. Mm. Um, Javier uh, and Miguel, they were both um, really good friends. And, um, and, and I, you know, think about their families, you know, I think about their kids. Um, I, I, I've been to see uh, Javier's wife since he was killed. And I remember her writing to me and saying that she feared for her life and she left Sinaloa. And, um, you know, that, all that, I think you, you keep it on the back of, of your head. And I, I, I think I, I used to dream quite a lot about, um, my experiences in the field. And, um, for some reason years ago, I stopped dreaming mm. and, uh, about stuff that had happened to me or, or, or having nightmares and, and stuff that, you know, Comes along. So they were traumatic dreams. Yes, I think they were traumatic dreams. You know, I think that there was uh, an accumulation of, of, you know, of trauma, of, of, of stuff that I think that normal people, you know, I think that human beings are not designed to watch stuff like that. Mm. And, and I remember because I have a big family, I have six brothers and sisters and they do different things. I mean, there are architects, teachers, engineers, you know, and, um, and I remember my father asking me, why is that you enjoy doing that? When I went to Iraq, I remember I called my dad and he said to me, 
if they kill you, I will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Has your dad met my mum? <laughs> <laughs> I think they've but, been talking. Yes. So, yes, I think it's... Um, the beginning, I, I, I didn't um, take into consideration all the stuff that my job could carry mm. and then that was something that i realized later in life how do you trust people guillermo in these situations when you often have to trust very dangerous people people who can turn on you and kill you as they did with miguel and javier i think uh i don't trust anyone nowadays and I have this, I consider it um, a special gift that I have to read people. And it doesn't matter if it's a president or a, you know, hardcore delinquent. And my trick is I always look at people at the same level that they are. If he's a criminal, you know, you go to the level and actually speak like, the same eye level, if you want to put it like that. If you speak with the president, the same. And after a few minutes, I I can feel like the type of person I'm dealing with. But I normally, nowadays, don't trust people. And I don't trust them because of my experience and seeing how, you know, nowadays they, they can record you. They want you to say things that they can be used against you. So, you know, I just, I tend to go and listen. But what I, what I do as a journalist, and I think that's very, uh, an important part of my job, is that I submerge myself in the world that I'm reporting. For example, if I'm doing something about gangs in Rio de Janeiro, I don't stay in Copacabana. I, I go and stay in the favelas. Wow. And that's, for example, something that I recently did. I was working with a friend the first two days I stayed in Copacabana and I said to him, I cannot cover this from Copacabana because it's too removed. You know, of course, you go every night to your nice hotel to have your nice dinner. And you miss the gun battles in the barrios and you miss, you know, the ladies that are looking for the kids, etc. And I stayed in the, in the favela for two weeks. It was a completely different experience. I mean, it was, uh, it was something that I needed to do in order to understand really well what was happening there. And, and I remember going out to film at three in the morning, you know, being up, listening to all the gunfire at night. And going out of the house and all the neighbors were out and they were complaining how they couldn't sleep and that they had worked the, 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 the next day. So I think you understand things that you cannot understand if you are covering a conflict or you're covering a situation from a posh hotel room. I mean, that's incredible dedication and that's dangerous work. Well, it is, but I think it's part of, of my work. I enjoy going and actually living with different people and the only way you can tell a proper story is by doing that because that's when people put down their guard you know they they you, they show you a different side 
of the story that you won't see on the internet on, on previous articles or nothing like that. I think you need to leave stuff in order to be able to report it properly. Guillermo, I'm really interested when you talk about being able to read people. You deal with incredibly dangerous people, people who can kill you and will kill you very easily, like professional hitmen. Tell me what these people are like and what it's like dealing with them. I've always been uh, surprised by and amazed by uh, people who kill people for a living. I remember the first hitman I interviewed in Colombia. I was doing a story about gangs in Cali. Cali had become one of the most dangerous places on earth. It was, you know, after the collapse of the Cali cartel and the Medellin cartels, all these gangs appeared in Cali and they started, you know, fighting each other. And they were related to the paramilitaries. All the gangs were related to the, to the guerrillas and drugs was in the middle of all of them. I went to film with these uh, boys because they were quite young. And I remember arriving with the camera and they were snorting coke and, uh, and drinking rum. And it was like two o'clock in the afternoon. And we ended up playing football for like two and a half hours in the barrio. And after the football match, we went to a bar. Uh, you know, we were drinking a few beers and a shootout started. A motorbike came by and the guy on the back started firing his pistol and he hit the guy that I had been filming. And the guy was shot in the head. Wow. I remember I, I was quite impressed. In front of you? Uh, so, you know, when the shootout started, I moved inside the bar mm. and this young cocky boy that I had been filming, I had been filming him and his brother, you know, this guy came out with the pistol and I remember hearing the bullets that were hitting a lamppost. I remember hearing boom, boom, and the bullets were like bouncing as well. And this guy was shooting his gun behind the lamppost and suddenly they hit him in the, in the head, right in the, in the front head. Uh, the guy dropped, his brother went, you know, there was a bit of a mess. I remember thinking, what the hell am I doing here? And I was with a Colombian journalist, and he was in shock as well. So what happened was they stopped a taxi, they put the guy in, and they took him to the hospital. Was, he, was the, he still alive? No. Uh, for, uh, for, for me, I think he was dead. Mm. Immediately I thought he was dead because of, you know, he was completely unconscious, and he had a, a, you know, his face was covered in blood, and I could see he had been shot in the head. Uh, so they took him to hospital. In hospital, they declare him dead you know and and we were outside the hospital with 15 gang members uh several of them were armed high on coke on alcohol and i was thinking anything can happen here oh my god and i remember they took out the body and took him to the morgue and i went with all of them we went to the morgue and and it was like they had accepted me by that time i think it had it had a lot to do with the football match to be honest because we play football and, and, and I remember we love a lot and then we had a few beers and that opened the door. I mean, that left me on their same level, I think. And the fact that I had been in the same place when, he's, when, when this guy got shot, 
you know, and I tried to help because they saw, you know, I tried to move the guy. I, you know, I said, listen, we need to take him to hospital and all that. They respected me because of that. So in the morgue, I remember, you know, they were carrying him and, and the guys inside the morgue were pretty scared of this bunch of young guys high up with weapons inside. And at the end, we left him there. I went with his brother to back to his house. It was like six in the morning by then. He told his mom, and he was the third son that this lady had got killed. My God, in a shootout. Yeah, I mean, he was the, the third son she had lost in this war. And all of them were under 20. You know, so she only had one son left. And I remember looking at him and saying, listen, you need to live this life. You know, if not your mother is going to die from the pain that she has inside. You know, and from that was the law. remaining son who was a gang member. Exactly. What did he say when you told him that? He, he said to me uh, that he was going to go and kill the people who did this to his brother. And the next day I went to the funeral and it was one of the most amazing things I've seen in my life. First of all, we walk with the coffin with this guy in the barrio. You know, you had a hundred people. The barrio is the district. The, yeah. The, yeah, the in district, the this poor shanty town on the outskirts of Cali. Mm. And I remember, you know, all these guys shooting you know, up on the air, pa, 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 pa. They were all crying. They were all snorting coke, drinking, carrying the coffin. We arrived walking to the cemetery. And I remember seeing a sign outside the cemetery, beware, they steal, they, they rob in this cemetery, you know, like, and uh, we went in and the security guards, they were so scared that they left running. And we went to the place where he was going to be buried. I remember the police arrived and there was like a police cordon around because they didn't know what was going to happen. And I remember they opened the coffin. They threw a lot of cocaine into the face of this young boy that, you know, was a little bit like, looked very plasticky because they've made his head again in order to bury him. He, he was shot in the head. They put all this cocaine, they closed the coffin and they wrote with a knife in the coffin, on the top of the coffin, they wrote, I love you. Wow. And then they bury him. And he was, and I remember his brother saying to me, I'm going to go and look for, for the guy who did this. And uh, we stayed filming there for another few days and then we left. But then years later, I found by... By coincidence, I, I met this guy on the streets of Cali. The same, and the I, same kid. The, yeah, the same kid. And, uh, and I didn't recognize him at the beginning. I thought they were going to rob me. And the guy, you know, I didn't have a recollection of his face. And it was simply because this guy who approached me had been shot as well in the face. 
and his face was all deformed. So he looked like quite scary. And he said, oh, do you remember me? And I was like, no, I don't. I'm this, this, and that. Remember the film that you did in Cali? And I said, oh, yes, I'm the brother of the guy that you feel. Oh, wow, man, what a, how incredible. What happened to you? And he said to me, they tried to kill me. They shot me in the head, but I survived. And I said, what about the other guys? And he said, they're all dead. And I'm talking about guys who the oldest guy was probably 23, 24. From this bunch of guys that we filmed, no one was alive. And I, my feeling was like, you know, people don't know how dangerous it is to be born in places like that. And just to be a to teenager. Be born yeah. yeah, just to be born and it's luck. Did he exact revenge on his brother's killers? Did he kill anyone? Yeah, he said to me he did. He did how kill. many? Uh, we didn't enter into uh, specifics, but he said to me that he he actually killed the person who had killed his brother. But I, I, I remember talking with him about something that impressed me more. And he was like, I asked him if he was going to retire or if he was retired. And he said, yes, I'm retired now, but you don't know when somebody's going to come and kill you for something that you did in the past. And I asked him, I remember very clearly, when was the first time that you killed someone? And he said to me, when I was 15 years old, they paid me to kill a girl who had been unfaithful to her partner. And, and this male partner paid this young guy to go and kill her. And he approached her on the street. She was uh, with another guy and he shot them both. He went back, he collected the money, and I, I asked him, and what did you do with the money? Thinking that he was going to say, well, I bought 20 grams of cocaine and two bottles of rum. He said, I bought a bed for my brother and my mother. Hmm. So, you know, I was thinking inside, a bed cost the life of two people because these guys were sleeping on the floor. Yeah. That shows you the level of poverty. Yeah. They were immersed in. Hello, it's Ramita Navai here. Before we continue the conversation, I want to thank you for listening to my show. I hope you agree that these stories are not only powerful, but important. As I speak to some incredible journalists from around the world about what they've learned from working in dangerous places and how it's changed their perspective, it would be great to get your help in sharing their insights. So please do spread the word and subscribe, rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you continue to be inspired by the series and I look forward to you joining me for more episodes. Now, back to the show. And that shows you that often these are ordinary young kids who are not evil. They're just doing terrible things. Tell me what you've learned about human nature from hanging out with these young kids who end up being hitmen. I think that it depends a lot on the people that you 
grow up. I think that a lot of people that grow up in these poor barrios of Latin America and end up, you know, getting involved in drug trafficking and uh, murdering people and all that, uh, they do it at a very young age. And And I've met, for example, people in Brazil who used to be involved heavily in drug trafficking and kidnapping and stuff like that. And nowadays they're completely reformed, actually. One one of them, one uh, nowadays works in journalism. Somebody that I met and respect a lot because, for example, he 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 was able to leave that world and he had the courage to confront the local criminals and say, "I'm not going to follow up with this." And it was because his father got killed, and he felt that he had to change his lifestyle. And, 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 and people like that I respect a lot because to live in the epicenter and to, and to be able to, to avoid, you know, easy money and, and, and stuff like that, it is difficult. I think that people are not born bad. You know, it, it's the, 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 the place where you were born that makes you what you are. And if you grow up in a, in a poor barrio on the outskirts of a capital city in Latin America, you will probably grow up with your father, you know, getting drunk, beating up your mom. You will see a lot of violence around. You will know a lot of people who get killed on the, you know, on the, on the, on the way. And, um, and then it's, 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 it's something that you, you see everywhere here. It's a matter of how you prove yourself, how you are, more macho than the other guys and you know then you kill and then the more you kill the more bravo you are the more hardcore and and that's you know what you see in every single barrio yeah yeah i mean that's a story that repeats all over the continent yeah these cycles of violence and how ordinary people are affected by violence and absolute poverty kiamo do you think Evil exists. You say you don't think people are born bad. But have you ever come across evil? Yes, I think it does exist. I think... Tell me, have you ever met anyone you thought... I, I've, I've been in places where, where I felt that devil was there. A long time ago, there was a big massacre in Colombia, mm-hmm. and uh, the guerrillas were fighting with the paramilitaries, and 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 the the whole town went inside a church to protect themselves, mainly women and children. And fuck, they fire one of these gas cylinders that they use as bombs, and they missed, and they hit the church. Mm-hmm. And it was it was it was a complete massacre. I arrived, I arrived days later, but then I went back several years later to the same place to film a documentary with a dear friend of mine who is, uh, you know, one of the greatest photographers that I know. He's a Colombian guy called Jesus Abad Colorado. Um, he's been kidnapped twice himself. And uh, we did a film called The Witness, El Testigo, because he's been uh, taking pictures of the war in Colombia for years 
And uh, and we went back to this place because it was a place that he had photographed and, you know, was, he was the only guy, I think, that got there. And we went inside the church and the church was still destroyed. You know, the vegetation was overgrown and you can still see, like, uh, you know, stains of blood on the floor years after. And I remember I was filming and I felt the presence of 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 the devil suddenly i felt somebody something went up through my spine and actually it like paralyzed me and 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 i felt like of course you know more than a hundred women and children died in this small space and um i remember after that shoot i came back to peru and and he felt i felt completely completely overcharged and it was like all the stuff that i had been seeing all over the years and that i was immune to suddenly hit me and after that trip um i remember i i went to to the amazon and i did like a small retreat to try to um you know to cure my, my wounds and to and to fix myself and um and i went to speak with uh, with a shaman that uh, I trust a lot. And he looked at me and he said, oh God, you're full of chapas. He said to me in Spanish, chapas means like the the things that you have in, but they are not yours, and that you've acquired. And then the shaman, he explained something very beautiful to me. And he was like, Guillermo, you had a shield that you've been wearing out over the years. Mm-hmm. And now what happened is that your shield doesn't exist. So immediately you absorb things and you've been accumulating things. And, um, and I remember spending, uh, more than a week in the Amazon, you know, just by myself, um, trying to, um, to lick my wounds and to, and to cure myself. And when you say cure yourself, were you, did you take ayahuasca? I did. Yes. Uh, and five, did it help? Five, it... five days in a row. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and you did this, what, as a kind of therapy to purge yourself yes, yes, yes. of the trauma that you were feeling completely. in your body and your nightmares? Yeah, completely. It helped me a lot. Did a it lot. really? Oof, it, I cannot okay. explain you. Explain, yeah. d- describe uh, to me how it helped you. I haven't. I haven't done ayahuasca yet i say yet because i've been i've been meaning to try ayahuasca and for our listeners who don't know it's an uh, it's you get it it's an amazonian plant you have to boil up don't you the vine and the stalk together and it's hallucinatory um and a yeah, shaman it has dmt as a it's a ayahuasca and chucruna two plants that they are boiled and then the ayahuasca inhibits your uh, or stops these receptors that you have from inhibiting DMT, and then the the chucruna is the plant that has the DMT, which is a very powerful hallucinogenic that is used been used for thousands of years in the Amazon to cure people. And the way it is, I describe it is is the best psychiatrist that you can see because you see yourself is very introspective. And, and of course you purge a lot, but I was able to see many things that I had on the, the back of my head, I think. And, and I remember drinking the first day. I had, 
and and I thought like this is not for me. It was it was incredibly strong, and I and I um, actually I went to the shaman and I said I'm leaving tomorrow, and he said to me uh, I wouldn't recommend you to leave. So the next day I woke up. They give they gave me this breakfast of plants or whatever, and the shaman said to me you have to drink today again. And I remember I drank. I had a really bad experience. I was feeling really miserable, and I drank five days in a row. And then after the fifth day, the guy said to me, um, how are you feeling? And I said, I'm feeling wonderful. You know, I actually wanted to keep, <laughs> to keep drinking. And, uh, and he said to me, you need to watch out because that can change your personality, you know, and, and it's unless you're trying to be a shaman or something like that, it's not recommended that you drink it so much in a row. And he helped me a lot. He helped me to, to purge my, my, I think to to clean my head and then to understand that uh, you cannot expect everybody to have gone through the stuff that you've been through. And uh, and so that's, you know, it changed my approach on people. Because, for example, before it's, it's quite difficult to, you know, when you arrive from a place, very miserable place that you've been filming and telling the story for family that actually everything went wrong wrong and then you arrive to your house and you know and you go out with your kids and you go out shopping you go to the supermarket you go to the beach and life is all normal and you know in, in the back of your head you're thinking like it is not normal i mean I'm, I'm you know this is you know i'm so lucky to have this you know because i've just been with people who have completely the opposite Kiema, had you tried conventional therapy, talking to a therapist before you tried ayahuasca? Yes. Yeah, I, I sp- I've spoken to a therapist before, yes. It, it did help me. I think um, I think it goes hand in hand. Actually, the, the therapist, the psychologist said to me, I asked her, you know, I, I want to go and drink ayahuasca. And she said to me, oh, I think it's a good idea. If you, if you, you know, if you know about that, about the trip, etc., she, she thought it was fine. And, and, and when I came back, she also realized how good it had done me. You know, I think it, I was overloaded because I think people like us, it's like, you know, your, ga- your glass start, starts to fill up and you don't realize how full it is until it overflows. And and I think that's um, that's the case for a lot of people. And 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 yes, I've uh, with that experience in the Amazon, I I learned to appreciate more the simple things in life, and not to expect anything from anyone. And and then I think things are, are a lot easier. And how did the ayahuasca, in terms of dealing with trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder, how did the ayahuasca compare to traditional therapy? I think that um, with ayahuasca, you are the therapist. You have the answers. The answers are inside you. So you start, you know, answering those questions that you have. And you start seeing things that you've probably put in the back of your head for so much time because you you wanted to avoid them and i think that was um 
that that was something that I that I did. I, I consider myself. I grew up on this privileged family in a continent that is, you know, pretty fucked up. Sorry, mm. and um, and 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 when you realize that, I think the my main objective was okay. How can I help now? Because mm. uh, you know, it's, it's for me, it's all about we're on the same boat, you know, and it's it's a matter of helping other people and i think that that's what my job has has become lately Guillermo, you're talking about meeting kind of ordinary kids who get caught up in violence and gangs what about the men who make it to the top the drug lords tell me what it's like meeting them i've always been uh, fascinated by but those type of characters and uh I had the opportunity to meet several high-ranking drug traffickers, some of them, you know, with millions of dollars on their heads. M- millions of dollars uh, Millions of dollars of money. rewards. Bounty money, yeah, bounty money. I remember I, I interviewed the head of the Knights Templar. The name of the guy was La Tuta. Servando Gomez. When I went to interview him, there were more than 10,000 Mexican soldiers looking for him. I mean, we're talking one of Mexico's most notorious drug lords. Yes, he was the Mexican version of Breaking Bad. He was a, a teacher that ended up being the main man in methamphetamine production in Mexico. We'll continue the story of when Guillermo met La Tuta and what happened when Guillermo got on the wrong side of cartel boss El Chapo's wife in part two. We'll also hear how a single moment coming under attack in Colombia changed him forever. That's in the next episode of The Line of Fire. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about Guillermo's work, check out his page on the Channel 4 News website. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Line of Fire. If you'd like to follow me, my Twitter handle is at Ramita Navai. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe. And tell your friends they can find us wherever they get their podcasts. Until next time. The Line of Fire is a podcast from Aura Studios. It was presented by me, Ramita Navai, and edited and produced by Chris Scott. Our executive producers are Claire Cottrell and Richard Osman. <laughs>